Our text this afternoon will focus on the Word of God as we have it summarized in the Confessions, and we'll focus specifically on Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which we'll read now together. Question three says, from where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. After the reading of the sermon, we're going to sing from hymn 70, stanzas 1 through 4. Beloved in Christ, in order to hit your goal... You've got to be aimed in the right direction. That's true for a lot of things. If you're trying to snap a photo, you have to point carefully, adjust the zoom, then take the picture. If you're trying to score a goal in soccer or hockey, you have to aim at the net in order to score. Even if you want to park your vehicle, it takes a certain degree of aim. Direction is important, otherwise we miss the mark. That's also true as Christians. We have to make sure we're aimed in the right direction. And simply put, this afternoon we see that the two directions that we're aiming for are horizontal and vertical. That's what we see in the Ten Commandments, which are divided into two parts. The first part of the law teaches us how to live in relation to God. This is what vertical orientation to our life, pointing upwards, where we realize there's more to life than what we see here on earth. Life isn't just about pursuing our goals. It's also more than enjoying the blessing of the people around us. Though there needs to be that vertical aspect where we live in a loving relationship with God, our Creator and Savior. God has a claim on us, and He wants our genuine love and worship. The second part of the law, says the Catechism, deals with what duties we owe our neighbor. This describes how we live horizontally relating to all those people around us on our level each day. You meet these people everywhere. They're in our houses. They're in our church. They're on the bus, at school or at work. And the question is, how do we deal with them? How's our horizontal aim? Even though we won't get to the Ten Commandments until much later in the Catechism, the division is helpful here in Lord's Day too, Because we're talking about God's law. What does God require of us? We're his possession in body and soul, we saw in Lord's Day 1, which means that God calls us to live his way. That'll be our theme this afternoon. What does God's law require of us? We'll see that we have to keep the royal law of love for neighbor, and we have to show an act of faith by love for God. We read from James 2 earlier. And reading that chapter, it's not hard to get the sense that there is some real strife among the believers James writes to. And a lot of that tension was because of differences in social standing or economic position. There were rich people in the congregation and poor people. There were members who were privileged 
and prosperous and members of a more humble status. That itself wasn't a problem. That's always going to be one of the differences we'll see. But then James points out how these outward distinctions led to a terrible result. He describes a typical scene of the church getting together, either for worship or perhaps a fellowship meal. Things are underway already when one of the church's richer members, perhaps a landowner or a government official, arrives. And it's not hard to notice his wealth. He's got gold rings and fine clothing. As he comes into the room, he might carry himself with a confident manner. And what do the others do? They quickly make a place for him. They give him a chair near the front. Then, not a minute later, someone else comes in, another church member. We could perhaps picture him wearing dirty clothes. To be honest, he might smell. Perhaps he's a laborer. He just came in from work. Anyway, his low position is clear. And the difference in reaction between these two men is very telling. Because while the wealthy one was given a warm welcome, treated with favor, the other is brushed aside. Suddenly there's no more chairs. It's go stand in the corner or come sit here on the ground. James's church has made a distinction between those who should be loved and those who are only tolerated. He writes, Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We should ask ourselves, could that happen here? Do we make distinctions like that among ourselves? Do we judge the people we meet? Do we love some and leave others? It can be a challenge, can't it? This commandment confronts us with our failings. Knowing God's command to love our neighbor is one thing, but doing it can be a real test. I remember reading a study once that said when we meet someone new, we very quickly form a judgment on them. Within something like five seconds of their beginning to speak, or even before they say anything, we've reached conclusions about what kind of people they are. Conclusions based strictly on superficial things, like their outward appearance, the clothes they wear, the shape of their body. Are they attractive? Are they, do they look successful? Are they a younger person? And these determine how we're going to treat them. With what kind of eyes do we look at people? That's the challenge, not to be judges with evil thoughts, but to love them, to see them on our level, to treat them with grace. Scripture says it often. The Catechism quotes the word, words of Jesus from Matthew 22, and Jesus in turn was quoting from Leviticus 19 verse 18, where it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord has always called us to live in that horizontal direction, to turn ourselves outward, to be our brother's keeper. James adds his voice to the love chorus of scripture when he says in 2 verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Instead of showing favoritism, we need to put into practice the royal law. Notice how James describes this love command as the royal law. And what is this? It's a law that's been issued by the king, by the one who is seated on the throne. Love your neighbor as yourself. This royal law is the supreme and authoritative word of God. It's the law that was confirmed by Christ our King and which was demonstrated by his life on earth, a life of humble service. When it comes to our neighbor, this is the law that sums up all the others. Love others just as you love yourself. As you love yourself. 
the royal law says. In the hands of the wrong people, that can be a dangerous phrase. I've got to love myself. We hear it often in a self-centered world. I need some me time. I'm going to treat myself or because I'm worth it. Let me take another selfie, share it with everyone because I'm so interesting. So with this command, is God suggesting that we're supposed to love ourselves in the sense that we may make sure we are happy and we are secure above all? No. Even the children might know the joy principle. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Still, God knows that so many of our thoughts are about ourselves. It's that inner conversation we have. How am I feeling right now? Will this help me to reach my goals? Should I have supper soon? Attention to yourself is unavoidable. You can't get away from self-interest. But God's royal law means we take that inward orientation and we point it another way. Try to love someone else like that. Think about the needs of others. Get their physical good and their spiritual benefit onto your radar. Pursue the good of others with all the devotion you pursue it for yourself. Ask them, how are they doing? How can I help you? This gives a different outlook to our lives. What happens when you hear about a person or a family who is in need? Or what happens when you see someone standing on their own after church? Take some action. Put the royal law into practice. Love them as you love yourself. Or what if you know a neighbor who would benefit from your kindness, from your friendship, or your care? Put Christ's royal law into practice. Try to bring blessing in some way. This new orientation comes across clearly in the New Testament, in the numerous texts that end with the phrase, one another. There's at least a few dozen. It's a sobering and challenging exercise to look them all up and meditate on all the one another's in Scripture. Here's just a few. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Serve one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Offer hospitality to one another. In short, make one another your concern. Yet even when we aim to love others, we often miss the mark. The Bible calls us to one kind of love, a genuine, gracious, giving love. But our love is often way off. Because as we said, we do show partiality. We favor one person over another. We're biased towards one. We're ready to ignore the next. When there's someone poor in front of us, what do we think? Or what about that church member with the abrasive personality? The one that can be difficult to talk to? What if it's simply a stranger we meet? What kind of thoughts go through our mind? Since we know that thoughts lead to actions and that thoughts give shape to words, that's an important question. Do you really see this person as on our level or the level of a brother or sister or the level of one who was also made in God's image? Another challenge we have is being kind only to those who are kind to us. Yet we hear the words of Christ from Luke 6. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? 
Christians should have a different approach. Don't love simply those in that tight circle around you. Don't value only those who make you happy or associate only with those who share your interests and opinions. Instead, consider what Christ says. Love your neighbors, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. That's how high the royal standard is set. It's according to how God treats us. For the Lord sees that no one deserves a thing. He sees how poor we are in ourselves, how unlikable. But he shows us rich mercy and kindness. For the king himself is the one who kept the royal law. Though he was the Lord of glory, he came down to earth to be clothed in our humanity. Christ spent his life ministering to sinners, serving them and helping them. The Lord of glory put our interests ahead of his own, and he loved us with a perfect, priceless love. By his sacrifice, Christ has made us a royal priesthood to keep his royal law. He even made it the mark of being his disciples that we love one another. That becomes the evidence that we have received God's mercy when we show mercy to others, when we treat them better than they deserve. May God help us not to judge people or show partiality, but may he help us to reach out with a wholehearted love. They're on our level and they're in our lives, so they must receive our love. Earlier we mentioned how God's law is divided into two parts. His law governs the duties that we owe our neighbor and it directs our relationship with the Lord. The law, we said, means your life and love needs to have a horizontal and a vertical direction. And about the vertical, we should say that everyone lives in some kind of relationship with God. For God is our creator. His royal law is supreme over all humanity. So every single person on this planet is in a relationship with the Lord, whether they're aware of it or not. Only the question is, is it a good relationship or not? And how do we know? We know it by our faith-filled obedience. You can know that you love God by what you do with God's commands. James has something to say about this as well. In chapter 2, he's teaching us about faith and works, how they're like roots and branches. You might say your deeds go with your creed. But James imagines someone arguing with him. You have faith, I have works. In other words, God's happy with you because you go to church, you agree with the creeds and the confessions, and God's happy with me because I support the Red Cross, I lend my tools to my neighbor. The thinking says that as long as you've got one or the other, faith in God or love for other people, you're doing okay. In response, James points to the demons. He challenges his readers. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe. Because at one level, it's not so earth-shaking to say you believe in God. Probably many Canadians still do. And the demons do too. You could say that the demons are even orthodox in their doctrine because they affirm the oneness of God. They have an accurate view of the Lord. But so what? Right doctrine is not proof of a saving faith. Saying that there's a God doesn't mean that things are right between you and the Lord. Those demons know about God, but they hate him. They're in a relationship with God, but it's one that makes them tremble. 
because they're going to be destroyed. Their response to him is all wrong. So then if a person says he knows God, even claims to love God, might come to church every Sunday, but that love isn't worked out in a real and practical way, what should we conclude? If being a Christian doesn't change what you do, doesn't set you apart from your unbelieving neighbors, such a faith is dead. It's dead. Not just in the sense that it's not doing what it should do. It's not even really what it claims to be. It's not faith. There's a different way to relate to God, and it's this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We hear that so often, but we should take it apart. First, what does it mean if you love God with all your heart? Your heart is the center of your person. It's your heart that determines your words, that gives shape to your thoughts, that numbers your priorities, sets your desires on things. So God commands that we be filled with not just a knowledge of him, but with an affection for him. We love him. We delight in Christ. We enjoy our fellowship with the Spirit. Love God with all your heart and with all your soul. If your heart is the command center of your life, then your soul is your very existence on this earth as an individual. It's that array of abilities and talents, your duties and responsibilities that you bear before God. So God says, take all that you have, all that you are, and love him with every bit of it. As James says so often, what are the works that accompany that love, the deeds that go with your faith? What's different about your life now that you've affirmed there is a God and that you love him? The Spirit tells us this is the love of God, to obey his commands. It's just like in human relationships. When you love someone, you take a pleasure in doing their will. When there's someone we care about, it's not usually a burden to serve that person. So also, if we love God, we'll listen to what he says. This is what God wants me to do, so I'll do it. I'll go his way. Not because it's necessarily easier. I'll do it because I love him, because of what he's done for me. Our love language for God is acts of service, deeds of obedience. Love God in heart and soul and with all of your mind. For our mind must be set on things above. God wants us to dwell on his mighty works. Even in the way that we think about other things, about our job and position, or other people, or our troubles, God desires that we bend our minds toward him. It becomes an instinct, a sanctified way of thinking. What would God say about this? How would the Lord want me to respond? What would Jesus command me to do in this situation? This is living out that vertical link, attuned to the Lord, dependent on the Lord, submissive to the Lord. Horizontal love is hard. We saw that earlier. But it's even harder to have that vertical bearing, to live in a spirit of worship before God. When it comes to other people, it's pretty difficult to avoid them because we bump into them all the time. Whether we're in line at a restaurant, walking around the playground or in our homes, our neighborhoods, we can't help but be reminded of our Christian calling with respect to other people. Here's a person that I've got to love. I've got to be kind or I need to be patient. But the vertical is another matter. God is invisible. He doesn't reach down and grab us by the sleeve so that we pay attention. 
So we can go long hours without thinking about God. Yet, he hasn't gone away. He's involved in every second of our day. He's behind every event, when we're studying, working, or relaxing. It's God who's directing us, leading us, blessing us, keeping us alive. Yet so often, we don't even notice. And if we don't notice God, how can we grow in our love for him? If we don't think of God, how can we worship him? Here we still have to do battle with that old inclination to hate God, to forget him and dismiss him. Yes, the vertical dimension of our life can begin to fade and the upward direction can go astray. The catechism reminds us how we're inclined to do this very thing. For example, if we don't open God's word, we're like a radio that starts picking up more and more static as you drive away from the city. It starts strong, but that clear signal can get lost the voice starts to fade. If we don't make time for the Lord's word and prayer, then the upward connection of our life starts to weaken. As with anything, if you don't aim for it, how can you expect to reach it? If you don't seek God, you won't find him and you won't love him. Instead, draw near to God, to the one who gave his son for you. Know the God who calls you his child in Christ. Delight in the Lord who blesses you daily with good things. Seek the Lord in his word and praise him with your voice and with all your works. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind because he has so deeply loved us in Jesus Christ, his son. Amen.